This is the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Hi, I'm Jackie Forrest, and welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast. It's November 30th, 2018. And hi, I'm Peter Terzakian. What are the hot topics for today, Jackie? I think you've all, if you've been following our podcast, know that the differentials in Western Canada have hit record high levels because of a surge of oil sand supply that's filling the pipelines and putting a ton of pressure on price. And this is impacting both light and heavy oils. Uh, Just to give you an update on where price levels are, they have improved a little bit in terms of the differentials. Uh, Western Canadian slack, the differential was as high as over $40 different, even as high as 50 in the spot market at one point, that's actually come into about $30. So still horrible, it's horrible uh, but, but not as, as yeah. bad. Meanwhile, Edmonton Light has also improved. The differential is now about $21 cheaper than crudes at Cushing in the United States, but that was over $30 at some point in but, the last But the real story weeks. here really is, you know, differential is not something that really a lot of people are used to gauging, right? Because that's like the discount relative to the U.S., market. But coming back to the WCS, I mean, just the WCS is the heavy oil marker that is relating mostly to the oil sands companies, right? That's right. The Western Canadian Select. Right. And the absolute price matters. A good point, Peter, because although the differentials have narrowed, the absolute price has been falling on us here. So we're still at very, very low levels, under $20 US for a barrel of heavy crude. I think that's the number to follow. Personally, to me, that's what I look at. Like under $20, I mean, we have not seen $20 oil prices as long as I can remember. You know, it's the early 2000s. It was the the recession of 2002 that we saw price levels. So here we are 20 years later getting prices that we used to get 20 years ago. Yeah. And that's also extended into the lighter oils, the Edmonton Light, which is pretty much the equivalent of the West Texas Intermediate, which is a globally quoted price, certainly relevant to us here in North America. The typical discount is only a few dollars, like what, five bucks, five dollars, five bucks, something like that. Edmonton Light is the equivalent of West Texas Intermediate, which is the Texas marker that we are measured against. And that differential has been what, 20 bucks, 30 bucks? It was as high as 30. It's down to 20. So basically when a producer in the United States is getting $50 a barrel today, in Canada, for almost the same product, you're getting $30 a barrel. So right. there's a $20 so difference. To me, again, that's that absolute number, that $30 number, because I look at that because it's getting very close to the cash flow break even. And for some of the more higher cost producers, they're actually losing money producing every barrel. That's definitely happening in the industry On today. On a cash basis. And I think the ones that are in better position are barely breaking even. Right. So it's pretty serious. It's very severe. And it's important that we explain these numbers because there's been some controversy. You know, there's been a very, I would call it a famous number that's being quoted by politicians and industry folks that we're losing $80 million per day from the Canadian economy because of these differentials. Right. And uh, there's been some controversy that some people don't think that that's the right number. You know, I would just say that we've done the math. And although it's hard to get a precise number of how much crude trades at Edmonton prices versus others, I think that's a very conservative number. Yeah. I think you're you're just not seeing it in the economy yet, but you're going to very soon. Okay, so that $80 million a day, that's basically how much value in revenue the producers are forfeiting as a consequence of these discounts. That's right. right. So you right. look at what the normal price is. For the right. case of the light crude from Edmonton, we just said it normally trades at $5. It's discount. It's trading at a $20 discount. So you take that $15 difference and you times it by the volume. And and now the the issue is how much is actually traded at that price, not 
every barrel is. It's very hard to get a precise number, but you know, I'm I consider myself an expert Look. at this industry, and I've gone through and been very conservative in terms of the pipelines we have, how much is traded at Edmonton, and that eighty million is, is yeah. probably an underestimate. No, uh, I, I think it's an underestimate too, and it uh, it changes. I think the important thing for our listeners to understand that the top line of global oil prices change on a day-to-day basis. This thing we call the differential or discount changes on a day-to-day basis. But the magnitude overall on, what is that, like four and a half million barrels per day of oil production, which is like the fifth largest producer in the world, is significant. Every dollar discount is four and a half million dollars, roughly speaking, right? That's right. On a daily basis. So, you know, frankly, I don't care if it's $80 million or it's Eight million or eight hundred thousand—it's a lot of money if you accumulate it over the course of a month and a year. And I don't think we should be accepting the fact that we are producing this high-quality resource and losing money, whatever the number is. But when you get into the kind of numbers that we are talking about in terms of absolute barrel prices in twenty and thirty bucks, you get cash flow negative. When you get cash flow negative or, or very little cash flow, you start losing jobs. That's right. And we're already starting to see uh, the pointy spear of that. There was an announcement this week from one of the service companies. Not many jobs yet, but I expect if things don't change here quickly, uh, more job losses will come. I just want to say one thing, too. It does make me angry that we're at a point with society where someone like the premier who has a department of energy, who relies on resource revenue and understands this industry, people can't trust that they calculate no, this I number. No, I mean, this lack of trust is really discouraging. Uh, I know the premier. I know the people in the department. They're not going to put forth a number. She's not going to put forth a public number unless it's scrutinized. And, you know, the cynics would say, oh, yeah, the politicians and the government and, you know, they don't know what they're talking about, blah, blah, blah. If we are at that point of cynicism in our society, we're in real trouble. If we can't trust the experts, you can't trust the people who are making decisions about us, we are in real trouble. Personally, when I see the spokesperson from GM or the auto industry stand up, I don't question their numbers. I take it as these people know what they're talking about and I'm sympathetic. If somebody in the agriculture business talks about the low price of wheat, I trust them. And if we... If we lose that trust, we're in real trouble. So uh, anyway, thanks for running the numbers. I've seen them. You've run them. They're big. That's the point. And the other point is, is that people are losing their jobs in smaller communities from Northeast BC all the way down to Southern Saskatchewan. And it's easy for people with spreadsheets to sort of pontificate about uh, whether the number is 80 million or 50 million or whatever. The real number is people losing their jobs in these communities. It's already happening and it's not good. That's right. So let's go back to uh, the solutions, uh, if there could be any. I want to highlight an article that we've talked about before that I wrote on October 30th called Light at the End of the Pipeline. And I argued that market forces would help improve the situation over the next few quarters and that the market always you know, will solve these problems. Now, I still believe that. But one thing that has really changed since then is the price level that we're at. So on October 30th, the WTIO price was almost $70.00. Now it's near $50. So what has happened since I wrote that article is the price that we're seeing in Western Canada has gone from being painful to being um, almost extreme. Like almost, we can't survive. There'll be companies that are going to be not surviving if this were to last six or eight months, honestly. Right, right. So the top line price is coming down. The discount is grudgingly narrowing. And the net result is prices for uh, all grades of oil 
being at such a level that companies are losing money, we're starting to see show up in the employment numbers. Now, you know, low prices can be sustained for a while, but not for uh, not for a long time. Right. So, you know, there have now been discussions about what can we do. Peter wrote a very interesting op-ed, got lots of uh, interest in it this week, called Play Nice in the Sandbox. And you actually argued that there was some logic for government intervention at this point. There is. I mean, I'm generally, as I mentioned in the article, a free market person. I don't believe in government intervention in the markets. However, this is not like the airline industry where there's uh, massive seat sales, like a discount to the normal seat price. Right? Mm-hmm. We're not having like a massive seat sale here and two or more airlines are duking it out. And we say, well, may the best airline win for the benefit of all consumers. In this case, uh, we do have producers that are duking it out, pushing and shoving, as I say in the article, to try and get their product into the pipelines. But there's a third very important stakeholder on this, and that is the people of Alberta. The people of Alberta are the owners of the resource under the Constitution, and Saskatchewan for that matter as well. And so... From the perspective of representing the resource owners who get into an arrangement with the companies to produce the resource for mutual benefit, we have a say. And it is our government that is our representative. And if there is any justification for the government to intervene, it is on behalf of the resource owners who are basically now forfeiting, if you annualize it, billions in royalties, income taxes, and associated multiplier effects in the economy. Right. And I think that's a really important point. This voice, until you wrote about it, you really hadn't heard much about it, but I don't think Albertans understand that they're bankrolling this price war and that, you know, we have a large deficit in the province. It's going to get larger because of a period like this. And can we really afford that? And does it really accomplish anything? Yes, the problem will get solved, but there'll be a lot of pain and lost jobs and economic devastation in the meantime. Right. And I, I point out, importantly, in the article that this is not just exclusive to the oil sands and a corner of northern Alberta. This contagion of the differential that we talked about earlier that spreads into the lighter grades now affects a wide swath of Western Canada from northeast BC through central Alberta down into southwestern Saskatchewan and even a corner of Manitoba. So we have a contagion that has spread and that this is a Canadian issue also, a broad-based Canadian issue. This is not just Alberta versus the rest of the country or oil sands versus the world. Like, this is this is a, a broad-based contagion. And I like you brought up that point. So we haven't been talking about the citizen who owns the resource, but we also haven't been talking about the non-oil sand side of the industry. So this problem really came from the surge of oil sand supply, and there's a bit of a market battle going on here between integrated oil sands producers who are less impacted by the local prices and non-integrated who have to sell most of their crude here. But it has had this knock-on effect on the rest of the industry, which a lot of people don't understand. Oil sands is big, about 3 million barrels a day of production, but the non-oil sands sides of the industry, including all the liquids and the um, light natural gas products that that are liquids as well that they produce, represent 2 million barrels a day. So 40% of our industry is really the victim of this situation because the value of all of their products is getting discounted severely. And this is a side of the industry that has actually made the biggest investment over the last couple of years in the province into new oil and gas um, wells and facilities. Right. No, this is a a super important point that uh, this is way beyond the oil sands. 
and employment and investment in oil sands. It's going into the non-oil sands, which, by the way, spends some $30 billion a year in a typical year, uh, which is twice as much as what is spent in the oil sands. So it is very consequential. And this understanding about the Canadian oil and gas industry, the Canadian oil industry, let's just stick to oil, is really important because outside of Alberta, the notion is, is that the oil industry is just oil sands. Right? Certainly with all the imagery of dump trucks and big facilities and all sorts of things like that. That's, that's the imagery. But this is far from the representation of what is a total industry. Right? That's right. 40% of the liquids that come out of this province are not coming from oil sands companies. Yeah. And even if you go back into 2014, the boom times, the spending on the non-oil sand side was larger than the oil sand side. Yeah. And today, as you say, it's quite a bit larger. It's almost three times more over the last couple of years. This is affecting jobs across Western Canada. Yeah. And unfortunately, if nothing changes, and I hope it will, but if nothing changes from where we are today, I would expect there will be very little drilling by these companies. Yeah. Uh, and they generate a lot of jobs. This is the right. big drilling season. Now, you talk about time is of the essence. Can you just explain this winter drilling season and yeah, um, so for for so for the forty percent of the industry that is on by volume of production that is not the oil sands, um, that is your typical drilling rig type imagery that you would see, and the bulk of the drilling happens over the course of the winter because the ground is frozen, and the heavier equipment can move on the frozen roads into remote areas of northeast BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, etc., and so. Right now, if this price is so low and there is no cash flow to fund those drilling operations, then you lose the entire winter drilling season, which basically means you can lose uh, you know, up to nine months of activity, for those, especially for the areas uh, toward the western side of Alberta and northeast part of BC, which are reliant upon you know, those frozen roads to get in and out of. Well, and important because that's where most of the new investment is going. That's in right. these areas kind of centered on sure. Grand Prairie up to Fort St. John and, and down to Fox Creek. Yep. And yep. so that's where the investment is. That is very impacted by this winter uh, drilling activity. I would also say something that doesn't get talked about that's very consequential is because you miss the drilling period, it's very consequential because the wells that they have declined very quickly. So if right. they don't drill this winter, they come out of this a smaller industry with a lot less potential to generate cash and spend uh, right. a year from now. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, something you don't really want to really want to miss. It's really important. So that's the near term. Then there's the midterm and the premier made an announcement about rail cars and so on. You want to talk about rail? That's right. So she talked a bit about rail the previous week, but this week, there's more of a formal announcement that the Alberta government is negotiating new capacity that would come on in late 2019, up to 120,000 barrels a day of rail capacity that the Alberta government would fund. They wanted the federal government to help pay for that, but uh, it doesn't seem at this point that they're going to, but the Alberta government is going to go forward with it as well. Now, I've had some feedback on this idea this week where some people say, well, that's too late because by the end of 2019, this line three replacement is coming and therefore we don't need it. But I, I would really disagree with that oh, position. Yeah. No, no, we, we need the rail if for nothing else. I mean, this should have been done a long time ago. Because, you know, rail is basically a pipeline on wheels that can go to multiple different refineries across the United States and Canada, not just a direct flight from, say, Edmonton to a refinery in Illinois or in Texas, right? You can go to multiple refineries on rail. And so the diversification of transportation options is really important. It's really important to be able to have that flexibility. So, for example, when refineries go down, that you're, you're not beholden to a refinery or when a pipeline breaks, 
and you have no other option. And I would add another benefit uh, that people aren't really thinking through when they're thinking of, you know, it's too late, is first of all, we don't know that Line 3 is going to start up on November 1, where Enbridge has sort of said that's the date, but I think we should have learned over the last few years that sometimes these dates... So what is Line 3? Line 3 goes from where to where? Oh, this is this replacement of an existing pipeline that will move more crude from Western Canada to the Midwest. And by replacing the pipeline, you're doubling its capacity and adding around 370,000 barrels a day of new capacity. And so the argument is, well, that, you know, when that comes, we'll need a lot less rail. But first of all, we don't know that it's going to come on that day. Second of all, we know we still need a lot of rail, even with that pipeline, because we have more supply today than even that pipeline can handle. Plus, there's more oil sand still coming. There's more growth still coming. And we're not certain when these other pipeline projects could actually be in operation. We have the TMX and the KXL. Keystone XL pipeline. We're not sure if that's going to be 2021. Maybe it will be later. And so I think this rail asset is going to provide value for years to come. By the way, the pipeline line three is one that goes to the Midwest of the U.S., right? That's right. Unlike Keystone XL, which goes down to Texas. That's right. The Keystone XL is a bullet line to Texas where all the heavy refineries that can take the heavy crude are. This one would go to the Midwest. So the premier has taken that first step for uh, the midterm issue. We've got the three envoys that she appointed that are trying to take care of the immediate situation. I expect they'll have probably a report out pretty soon because of the immediacy of the situation. We don't know what this envoy is going to decide, but let's say they do suggest cuts. There's a lot of questions about how you would do it. You know, the devil's in the details here. Very complicated. Yeah, very complicated. First of all, is it large producers? You know, do you give people credits for production that they've already voluntarily cut. Um, So I wanted to highlight some um, Jason Kenney, leader of the Alberta Opposition Party called the United Conservative Party, did put forward a plan this week with a lot of details. And I thought some of these were pretty constructive ideas Mm -hmm. in terms of what the mechanisms of how it would work. Yeah. So one was that he didn't think it should impact companies that are under 25,000 barrels a day. So therefore, it would just be 13 producers. You know, that would make it a lot more manageable from how are you going to, you know, provide the adjustments, make sure that people are meeting their requirements. He talked about, you know, there's going to be fines if the cuts aren't made. And so I thought that was a pretty constructive idea. Also, to kind of have cuts across even the smallest of companies, it's administratively quite a, a burden, and it doesn't really add up to very much production loss anyway. No, exactly. And, you know, I don't, with respect to the small company, the small companies were really not part of this price war market thing. And they are the ones that represent a lot of the employment in those large swaths of uh, Alberta that we talked about. And he also talked about their, the producers that have already made voluntary cuts. So for example, companies like Devon and Synovus and CNRL uh, in their last quarterly updates have already made voluntary cuts. They should get some credit for that, Mm -hmm. um, not just off today's baseline. He talked about the fact that maybe this policy would be in place for a year, but there'd be regular adjustments, you know, as the market starts to balance. So I thought these were all good ideas in terms of the mechanism. Yeah, you know, I'm actually encouraged by uh, the sitting government, uh, the Notley government, as well as uh, Jason Kenney. I think that there's constructive solutions being put forward. I think that uh, everybody is attuned to the issue and the problems at hand. And uh, that's all good. So with that, we'll end our podcast. I want to thank you for listening. If you do like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes or the other platform that you're listening to and tell someone else about us. And thanks for joining our podcast and have a great week. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.